This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. On Money Talks, we discuss money news and take your questions about personal finance. For 15 years, we've provided free financial information for Mississippians. I hope you can join me, Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, co-host of Money Talks, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or anytime on our podcast. From MPB Think Radio, you're listening to Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we're going to welcome Dr. Wesley Shoup, who just released the new book, Mississippi's Natural Heritage, Photographs of Flora and Fauna. No stranger to the great outdoors, we'll talk with Dr. Shoup about his recent observations of Mississippi wildlife, photographing Lafleur's Bluff State Park, and the inspiration behind his new book, published by University Press of Mississippi. Dr. Major is here, as always, ready for pet questions, and Libby likes to hear about recent encounters with nature. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. Are you still reporting to us from the Pacific Northwest? Yes, I am, Kevin. I'm, I'm still in Oregon. We've been spending a lot of time on the water, which is, I guess, not unusual for us. But um, the smoke, well, there are fires here in Oregon. I, in fact, I just noticed the, the short news update mentioned the fires out here. I, we're very lucky this year in that we're not, um, we're not affected very much by the smoke. But there's been a little smoke every day for the last week or so so we've been going to the river taking the boat going um, further to the coast and to the river and enjoying that a lot so what have you been seeing uh there's a, a been a a pair of uh banded kingfishers and a, a place that we like to go with the water so that's one thing that we've been watching a lot uh most of our time has been spent with a two-year-old and a five-year-old so uh, we have to uh, do whatever the little boys, uh, whatever we can do to keep them entertained as well. And uh, we found that these kingfishers are great birds for us to watch with the boys because, for one thing, the, the belted kingfisher makes a lot of noise, a kind of a raucous, rattling, crackling sound. And uh, the, guy, the little boys can identify those right away. So, uh, and they, the kingfishers dive for fish, and they, it's pretty impressive the way they dive. They're like a, a missile going headfirst into the water. They don't really dive very deep, but um, it, it's, it's really impressive when they, and they catch fish almost every time. So, we get to see that. But what was has been different the last two or three times we've gone over because there's they're very territorial. So the the king we just had the two kingfishers when we get into their territory and we know where it is. So we we go and watch them always a little bit because it happens to also be a good place to catch um, dungeness crabs. So that's two birds with one stone, I guess, <laughs> and uh, plenty of activity because of that. But this. The last few times we've gone, 
there have been four and five kingfishers in this same territory. So we realize that's got to, those have got to be their young. And uh, when we can get the binoculars on them, we, um, it's pretty easy to tell. The, the female, unlike most birds, I guess, uh, the female and the, and the immatures have a little more color. The female and the uh, immatures have a rusty band and a little bit of sideway under their wings. That, you know, kingfishers are a pretty combination of dark blue and white. And when you add in that rusty band, they're just really beautiful. So I think for once in the bird kingdom, the female's a little showier than the male. But anyway, they're all in there fishing together and diving and doing lots of rattling. And uh, there's several weeks there where the male and female will continue to feed the, the young after that, you know, the young are just as big as as uh their parents when they leave the nest and um, just as heavy so they've they've got to eat a lot and it's constant diving in the water and rattling sounds and calling each other and anyway it's a fun fun bird to watch anywhere they're year-round residents where we are here in Oregon and they're year-round residents where we are in Mississippi so it's a bird that we get to see a lot but never get tired of seeing all right, always no, good. To, so, uh, how long are you gonna? Are you out there for your stay? We'll be here for another month. We'll probably get home at least by the middle of October. All right. Well, we always like to hear you're checking in and 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 the great stories of uh, of what you've been watching and what a great thing for your for your grandsons though to to you know to just be exposed to that and and to to develop this love of nature at such an early age. So kudos to you for for doing all that, having fun with yourself, but also uh, bringing up that next generation of nature lovers. We certainly appreciate appreciate hearing from you, uh, and we look forward to your report for next Thursday as well and anything that you want to chime in on this week too. Thank you. So uh, Dr. Major, as usual, joins us from his clinic in Jackson. Good morning, Dr. Major. It's the last day of August, and since 2020 – Not surprisingly, thanks to the Milkbone brand, it's been National Dog Month. So, um, if you had to convince a cat person to become a dog person, what would you use to persuade them? Gosh, that's a difficult, difficult question. Uh, You know, think about this. Recent surveys would show that, you know, over 70% of all pet owners consider their pet, whether it's a dog or a cat, part of the family. So and with cats, if they're already a cat owner, you're going to have to uh, convince them that it's going to have to be a dog that will get along with the cat. Uh, and that can be with any breed. It depends on the dog and the cat. So you have to be very careful with that. People that have multiple cats, a lot of times they you can't talk to them about adopting a dog. <laughs> If they've got four or five cats, it might be a very difficult. Somebody has one or two cats. Uh, of course, in our situation at home, we've got two cats. We've got uh, four dogs. Uh, actually, two of those are puppies, very small. And uh, an African gray parrot. He talks to everybody. And maybe a couple of uh, large tortoises. But uh, So... Households can vary within it. A lot of it just depends on the demeanor of the owner of the pets. 
and what they're willing to go through. But a lot of times, I, and there may be some good suggestions for getting a cat owner to have a have a dog for a pet, but it, it is difficult in a lot of cases. My one thought would be that if you are a cat owner, and the folks know that I've been one, that, you know, it's not like cats don't ever show any affection or appreciate you or, you know, whatever. But I think the, the dogs seem to be more obvious about their love of humans than, than cats do. Right. And a lot of cats can't stand for a puppy, for example. They want to be in your face and they want to be in the cat's face. And, uh, of course, cats usually are able to get into a higher place away from a puppy. But there is some adjustment, and uh, it's always great to see a dog and a cat, you know, laying down together, <laughs> uh, taking a nap. But uh, it doesn't always work out like that. So a lot of cats are aloof, and they really don't want uh, to be bothered by a dog. And I guess there are health benefits to pet ownership, and but, but specifically dog ownership as well. And, and this is not just, you know, an urban myth. This is it's kind of been documented, I guess. Absolutely. There's nothing that, uh, and cats are the same, but there's nothing, in my opinion, better than be tired, come home, and have a dog or a cat or both. Uh, you know, you can pet them. They want to see you. Uh, cat will be purring. The dog will be uh, wagging its tail. And they're always, that's one thing that I've always said, your dog and cat are always glad to see you. My cats are probably when I come home are more food oriented. <laughs> they're ready to they're ready for an afternoon snack. But the dogs are very uh what should I say, glad to see you just right in all cases. Mm-hmm. All right, so dog owners on this last day of National Dog Month, make sure that you are especially kind to your furry friend uh, today as as again we wrap up National Dog Month. So our guest for this hour is uh, Dr. Wesley Shoup. So, uh, Wesley, we appreciate you being here with us again. You were visiting with us last October. Uh, were you working on this book that you've come out with uh, recently back then? Oh, uh, for sure. I've been working on this book for a good four to five years. So we were chatting a little bit off air uh, before the show started. Give us kind of, if you would, maybe the how the book came about. Well, it, it originated uh, when I came down here from the upper northeast part of the country to take care of my parents as they were getting older and older. And in my off hours, um, I found that I could go down to Lafleur's Bluff State Park. Um, I'm a biologist and, and uh, take a look at our, our animals down here. Uh, not being a Mississippi native at the time, um, I didn't uh, recognize any of them, so I started photographing them to take them at home at night and try to identify them. Uh, and that uh, love of animals uh, developed into a love of photography, and it pretty much morphed from there. Uh, just ID pictures became pretty pictures, and pretty pictures ultimately became professional pictures. Um, the idea of a book kind of just came along uh, 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 naturally, it didn't start out that way, but you collect 10,000 photographs and then the idea at some point occurs to you. <laughs> so you mentioned that you're a biologist. If you would talk a little bit about your background. Well, I got a PhD uh, in parasitology at LSU, uh, became a professor after that for a couple of years and then went up and uh, 
worked at Merck and Company to try to kill parasites. Uh, I was in drug discovery. Uh, I happened to work with some uh, very, very uh, famous people there. Uh, Dr. William Campbell was uh, my boss. Uh, He and I worked together for 10 years on ivermectin, which many people might know is the active ingredient in HeartGuard. Uh, Dr. Campbell uh, won the Nobel Prize in Medicine, I think, in nineteen or in 2015 uh, uh, for that discovery. Uh, from there, I went on and found my own group of drugs. Uh, the uh, uh, most notable that I found was a foxalaner. And for those of you who have pets and use NexGuard for flea and tick control, uh, I discovered that. Um, I wrote the original uh, patents and uh, the original launch papers for it, um, and then uh, retired and came down to take care of my parents. Uh, so that's kind of my background as, as a biologist. We're going to be visiting with Dr. Shoup throughout the hour, so if you have a question, again, if, if you could see this great coffee table book that's sitting here in the studio with us, and, and I was able to flip through it before we started, some just crazy great pictures in here. So, and it, he covers all sorts of flora and fauna. So, I would imagine uh, that if you have an identification or something like that, that uh, Dr. Shoup should be able to give you some assistance. Um, so, when you're here last time, you were talking about spiders and creepy crawlers, insects, and that sort of thing. And again, they have their place in in the book. Tell us a little bit about some of the creatures, those types of creatures that you found and put in the book. Well, what I tried to do was. Um give people here in Mississippi an idea of what they can find out in nature and actually what they can find in their backyards. Um, we we in, in Mississippi uh, have inherited uh, uh, not only land, but the organisms that come with it. And uh, we have to be, uh, I think, responsible with that heritage. And the first part of that is is recognizing that they exist. Uh, I make the point in the book that 100 years ago, uh, 90% of people lived in uh, the country. Uh, 10%, 5% lived in cities. In 100 years, that has completely reversed. People live inside cities now, and they live with uh, fences around their yard, uh, with with invasive trees in their yard. They don't understand or recognize even the backyard birds. And I thought uh, a, a book like this might actually go a long way to helping people understand what we actually have in this state. Um, and so uh, I broke it up into chapters uh, of what we call invertebrates, which are kind of the creepy crawly things that you talk about, which the largest group within that are the insects. Uh, and then um, uh, we go into things like uh, amphibians, uh, reptiles, birds, mammals, plants, and fungi. It's essentially God, man, and the universe. Um, I also include in their fossils. Uh, because we find plenty of fossils here in in Mississippi, and they're remnants of animals that existed in a previous age. Um, And they tell us a lot about what this this thing we call a state looked like many years ago. Uh, Many people don't realize that 70 million years ago, uh, Mississippi was under 200 feet of water. Uh, it, and not just fresh water, but marine water. Uh, and we had corals here in central Mississippi. 
And thus, uh, in, in the book, I have actual photographs of fossil corals, uh, fossil oysters, uh, and a, a series of animals that no longer exist here in central Mississippi, except as, as fossils. So I've included those as well. Uh, but it gives you a, a view of what Mississippi is that we don't normally see. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, visiting today with our guest, Dr. Wesley Shoup, and we're talking about his new book, Mississippi's Natural Heritage, Photographs of Flora and Fauna. Uh, Dr. Major's here, ready to take pet questions if you have one. You know, as I was flipping through the section on the creepy crawlies, as we're talking about, um, it's amazing to me that you're able to kind of give them almost like personality. So, again, talk about your approach to photographing and again as we were saying earlier before we we came on the air it's not just point a camera at a bug and shoot it but it looks to me like you consider the background you know every little bit of thing so if you would maybe give us a bit of insight into your photo first photography uh, certainly well first and foremost I'm a biologist so I see animals that way uh, I don't look at them as a portrait artist at all uh, where you're trying to uh, just capture a face and you actually uh, make everything else out of focus. Uh, so when I look at an animal, uh, first of all, I capture everything out in nature. None, none of my photographs are staged. Um, uh, I actually capture them out there, and I actually try to include the environment in with the photograph. I don't blur it out. Uh, you can do that by all sorts of photographic techniques, mainly by using things like f-stop and whatnot. Um, whereas most people uh, use a shallow f-stop to blur things, I don't. I go the opposite direction. I want to include the environment. Uh, and then when you do that, you are forced, uh, forced uh, to undertake uh, an examination uh, of the composition that they are in um, and adjust yourself, not them, yourself, uh, to uh, a way that captures them and how and hopefully they're not just sitting there, but they're actually interacting in their environment as they would naturally. And therefore, you try to capture that. And of course, uh, good photographic equipment uh, helps in that capture. Uh, but um, out there, spending hours and hours at a time, uh, you can uh, go a long way to uh, getting a, a picture that does, in fact, tell a story other than just the identification of the organism itself. Um, and then I also saw that you've got you've got bees and wasps and things like that sort of. Is it at all? Well, maybe you get over it after a while, but was it at first? Were you ever a little nervous about getting up close to some of these things that can sting and such? No, no. Actually, as a biologist, I'm quite used, <laughs> used to that. Uh, I... I uh, found myself uh, sitting down right next to a cotton mouth uh, three feet away with, with a, a macro lens trying to uh, capture uh, shots uh, uh, of his eye. Uh, it's just something as a biologist you get used to. That, that's not a worry at all. Um, so uh, looks like we have got a caller on the line that we'll get to here in just a second. It's uh, our friend David who calls in from Horn Lake. David, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. I got a question about catawpha trees. Uh, there used to be a, 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 catap a catawpha a worm, it would be like a host plant. And uh, I want to know how can you attract the, the, the moth or the butterfly that uses a catawpha tree as a host plant to get the worms. Because I used to use them for fishing, and they used to be excellent fishing. But I ain't seen any in the last three or four years. Are they becoming extinct because of pesticides, or how do you attract them to get to a 
do they only go to the male or female tree, or, or, or how can you attract a top worm? The moth that get top worms on your trees. Well, I, I don't know exactly uh, uh, how to answer your question, but I can say this. Um, uh, insecticide use, um, especially indiscriminate uh, insecticide use, is a real problem um, worldwide and, and also within this state. Um, I know that uh, where I live here in central uh, Mississippi, uh, I love to go out at night and watch the moths on my front porch. Uh, and I have noticed that every time the the fogger comes through, which is uh, uh, often, uh, after that uh, several days, uh, my front porch is virtually sterile. Uh, and it, they, of course, are wanting to destroy um, disease-causing organisms, mainly mosquitoes. Uh, but the drugs, uh, the chemicals that they're using are rarely specific just for things like uh, mosquitoes. Uh, they w will virtually kill all insects. Uh, and therefore, uh, uh, when we used to be younger, and I've had discussions with Libby's husband, uh, Dr. Hartfield, about that, when we were younger, when our fathers would come home in their cars and, and, and you looked inside them at their grill, their, the grill of their radiator was literally coated with insects from where they were hit. You don't see that anymore. Um, so the answer to your question, I fear, is that indiscriminate pesticide use is really uh, impacting uh, insects uh, uh, across the, the spectrum, uh, not just Catalpa worms, uh, but all uh, insects. And to the extent that we can, uh, we need to, uh, to reduce uh, our insecticide usage. Um, of course, uh, we've got to protect our homes. We don't want uh, uh, some uh, insects in our house, etc. I understand that. Uh, but uh, we do have to think about uh, their use because they are having an impact. And, and one last point. Uh, if, if, if you destroy or damage the insect populations out there, there are nothing for the bats to eat. There are nothing for the frogs to eat. Uh, there are nothing for a lot of things to eat. And fairly soon, there won't be anything for us to eat. If you start impacting one level of the trophic zones out there, it will impact all others. And I ask you to consider that uh, uh, in your insecticidal usage. Uh, Libby, any thoughts on uh, David's question? Um, yes. I, I can tell you, David, that the best way is to find somebody with a catalpa tree that does have the worms, and you can transfer them that way. But um, Wes is right. There, you know, we we're so used to killing bugs, and we get focused in on a certain type of bug that we want to get rid of. Sometimes it's easy to not think about what else you might be taking out. So. Uh, You've got to protect your catalpa trees from chemicals. And if you can find somebody, in fact, this show might be a way, if there's anybody out there that has some catalpa worms they want to share with David, um, I, I think if you give them a call, we could write that number down, couldn't we, Kevin, for people? Absolutely, yeah. 
So, yeah, if you're listening and you have some uh, way to help out, David, uh, just give us a call and we'll see if we can't uh, get you connected one way or the other. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Good morning. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest for this hour, Dr. Wesley Shoup. He's the author of the new book, Mississippi's Natural Heritage, Photographs of Flora and Fauna, released by University Press of Mississippi. I think uh, Dr. Shoup just here recently, is that right? Yes. uh, In fact, it was not supposed to be out until October the 16th, but they surprised us. um, And they now have the books in the warehouse and... uh, uh, I hear that people are actually receiving those that have pre-ordered them. Uh, you can pre-order them from University of Press of, of Mississippi if you'd like, and uh, it's about a four about a three hundred page uh, book with four hundred uh, photographs of four hundred species in it that'll get uh, young naturalists off to a good start. Yes, I'm like in. I I can't say enough about just the stunning photography. And again, I was just flipping through it. And it's one of those where you, you know, I'm, I knew I had to come on the air here, but I'm like, I want to look through this book a little bit more. So again, kudos on the, on the great work that you did. Thank you. Uh, so we had an email that uh, photo and it says on a visit to Union Church, Mississippi in May of 2023, we saw this interesting cricket or grasshopper. Never seen one like it before. It's black with a yellow stripe down its back and around the top of its thorax. And you were able to identify it. Tell us what uh, kind of bug this is. It's a lubber uh, grasshopper. They're, they're reasonably common. Uh, grasshoppers are, are and, and their allies, such as katydids. Uh, katydids uh, uh, differ from grasshoppers mainly in their antenna. They're, they're longer. Grasshopper antennae are, are very short, but otherwise uh, they're very similar type creatures. Uh, and the, that's what that is. We find them uh, everywhere uh, and uh, throughout Mississippi. Uh, for the most part, um, uh, they're harmless, uh, of course, to humans. Uh, they may uh, at times eat uh, crops. And in the past, certain species have been uh, pests and, and actually considered plagues. Uh, but we don't have that much anymore, uh, again, uh, because of the use of insecticides. And again, we were chatting uh, before we came back on the air. Um, I think a lot of things that we think are striking in bugs in terms of what they look like are actually very important for them to, in a lot of times, be camouflage. And you were saying this bug in particular has that those markings that help it camouflage. Yes, uh, I mean this particular bug has a um, uh, bug. It's um, it's a grass uh, hopper. Uh, we, we reserve the true uh, term bug or true bug for just a, a particular order of, of insects that have a, uh, a, a type of proboscis. Uh, but yes, uh, getting to your question, uh, this particular grasshopper has a, a stripe down its back. And when you see it amongst grass, grasses, uh, that stripe will blend right in, uh, and they're very difficult to, to see. Uh, other organisms, uh, um, though, aren't looking to camouflage. Uh, other organisms actually are trying to tell you uh, to stay away. They want you to see them. Uh, for instance, we have a, a wasp, uh, we call it uh, a cow killer, uh, um, it looks like an ant, a velvet ant, and it's bright red. Um, and it's actually telling you, I'm a wasp. Do not mess with me. If you do, I will sting you. It's a warning display. Uh, a, a number of animals have them. Uh, coral snakes have them. They, they have red on them. They're telling you, leave me alone. I don't want to be camouflaged, nor do I want to be messed with. So color can tell you different things from different animals. 
And I think a lot of times humans uh, fail to uh, recognize those warning signs. Yeah, all too often. <laughs> uh, more discussion with Dr. Shoup throughout the hour, but we do have a pet question for Dr. Major, and it comes from Bill, who's calling in from Neshoba County. Go ahead, Bill. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Morning. I have a question about my uh, pet uh, dog. Uh, she's uh, a Boston Terrier mix, and uh, she's a real small dog, and um, she likes to run away. But that's not the real problem. The problem was is that she would run up and down the road out here in the country, and, of course, everybody else has dogs, but they usually have big dogs. She would terrorize those dogs. I mean, you know, a 110-pound dog, and she'd have it in the corner uh, pulling away. Until uh, one time about three months ago, one of those dogs said enough and attacked her and chased her away. And she has now uh, generalized that to all dogs. She, you know, when we go for a walk, she wants to pull away and uh, doesn't want to, you know, she knows where the dogs are, so whenever we get to their yard, she pulls away. And I was just wondering if you got any uh, clues on how I can train her that those dogs are just doing, you know, their own job and uh, they're not going to bother her. Well, that's a, that's a great question, but, you know, in reality, she learned her lesson, I think. Uh, it's a wonder that a larger dog had not attacked her before now. And a lot of times a small dog can bluff, bluff a big dog, but you get the right dog, and it could be fatal. So she's, she's pretty wary now, and uh, I would suggest that if you know some of these dogs uh, and have neighbors that you can get her around on a leash and that dog on a leash maybe reintroduce her to those some of those dogs but yes it's it's amazing that she had that bluff going on if you will but one of the dogs decided hey he'd had enough so i would suggest maybe cautiously trying to introduce her uh, to to dogs that you know are okay and i, I guess that would be my best suggestion okay Hmm. Okay, uh, I, I'll but, give uh, that a try. Give it a try, and of course that's one of the problems with, you live in the country, and I understand that a lot of people let their dogs run loose, but that is one of the problems that we see, uh, even in the city where uh, it can get into trouble. So good luck with that, and see if that helps, okay? All right, Bill, we appreciate your call this morning. Our guest today is Dr. Wesley Shoup, author of the new book, Mississippi's Natural Heritage, Photographs of Flora and Fauna, recently uh, published by University Press of Mississippi. We've been talking about the book. Uh, So, Dr. Shoup, again, I think you said uh, 400 um, photos in the book, but you've got much more than that, I guess. Was it a difficult process trying to decide which photos to include in the book? Uh, It was a terrible process. Um, when, when when you have 10,000 photographs uh, and uh, they allot you space for 400, <laughs> uh, uh, there's a winnowing process that obviously must take place. Um, and what I tried to do was um, g- uh, give diversity 
um, a, a, a bigger rein in my selection uh, than than just choosing pretty pictures. Uh, I actually had to throw away some of the prettiest pictures uh, for diversity. Uh, for instance, when you take a look at the animal world, um, uh, over half to three quarters of species out there are insects. Uh, and if I were to allot that within the book, three quarters of the book, 300 of the 400 photographs would be just insects. Well, you can't do that. That's not fair. Um, so uh, what I tried to do was recognizing that groups like insects, birds, and plants are large groups. Uh, I gave them uh, a much larger uh, 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 range in terms of number of photographs. Uh, but I still had to give um, fungi, mammals. Uh, amphibians, reptiles, fossils, they're due as well. So in order to get that type of diversity, I had to kick out a lot of, of really interesting animals and a lot of beautiful photographs. Uh, I would have loved to have had the ability to put in 5,000, but you can't do that. Uh, it, this this book is ex, was extremely costly to manufacture. Um, photographic paper and, and uh, photographic-type books are, are very expensive to make. And so 400, I was really happy with that they even allowed me that. But that forced me to have to make some very, very tough decisions. And, and in order to get certain groups covered, uh, I had to throw away some of my better photographs just to allow those to get in. So uh, it was a difficult process. Uh, I made it. Uh, I wasn't forced into it. Uh, I, they gave me total range to do that, and I did so. Is Mississippi... I don't know how to say the, what, how I would say this, but I think sometimes maybe we take for granted the, the natural resources and the natural beauty that we have here in Mississippi. But I think we're fortunate to live in a state that has such diversity, I would imagine. Uh, you are. Of, uh, Mississippi um, uh, is, is interesting in several respects um, in terms of animals. Let's just take uh, turtles, for instance. Um, in, in many ways, uh, Mississippi has one of the great, great uh, diversities of turtles in the world. Uh, there are some turtles here, uh, uh, mainly in Mississippi, that are found nowhere else. Uh, for instance, the map turtles uh, of the genus uh, Graptomys. Uh, they apparently had their origin within the Pearl River drainage systems. Uh, and thusly, they are found mainly in the Pearl River and some of the associated drainages around them. And I remember as a graduate student, uh, we had some uh, people from China that were offering uh, us as graduate students $1,000 to collect a single one of these turtles because they do not exist anywhere else. And some of these very wealthy collectors wanted one to finish out their collection. And for a graduate student back in those days, Days where you were making $5,000 a year, that was uh, something that was very, very uh, attractive. We did not do it. Um, and uh, Mississippi, though, has these type of organisms uh, right here in our Pearl River that you can't find anywhere else. And uh, uh, similar uh, analogous things could be said for other things. But in general, we, we um, 
have a diversity that is found fairly uh, well throughout the southeastern United States, with some exceptions. We happen to be more of a, of a rural state than some others. We also happen to be more of a forested state than some others. So our heritage, though, is more intact than a lot of these other places, and I hope we can keep it that way. So again, if someone's maybe interested in photography or just wanting to learn more about the natural world around them, they might think that you have to, well, I've got to go to the Floors Bluff State Park or on a hike or something about that. But you're saying you can just start out in the backyard. Absolutely. Uh, that uh, was one of the major points I tried to make in, in the book. Uh, it's, it's amazing that people will spend thousands of dollars to take exotic trips to see things uh, in the Amazon, and I have, so I understand it. Uh, you can get in the car and bundle the kids and go down to Lafleur's uh, Bluff State Park, which I do several times a, a week, but you can also just look in your backyard, on your porch at night. Um, I, I have uh, identified over 700 species just in my yard. Mm. Uh, and and my yard is not unique. There is nothing about it that is probably any different than your yard other than I open my eyes and I look. Uh, and that I, I want, every night I go out on my porch uh, just for, for 15 minutes um, when the light's been on for a while and just take a look at the insects that are out there that have been drawn in by that light. Uh, and over a period of about four years, as I said, I have identified over uh, and photographed uh, over 700 species just in my yard. And then when you open that up and you go to a place like Lafleur's Bluff, uh, now you can be into the thousands. Uh, and and uh, most people are, are oblivious to this. Uh, uh, they walk by these organisms all the time uh, without recognizing it. I, I'm always stunned when I walk down the paths of Lafleur's Bluff and I see people walking with their dogs untethered, and and uh, they're jumping in the water occasionally. And and I, I I will oftentimes say to them, "Are you aware that there are not only alligators here, but there is literally an alligator about forty yards from your dog?" And they look at me in total uh, disbelief. Uh, they did not know they were there. Uh, and when they are made aware of it, it changes their attitude considerably. But again, we, we live in, in a world where, where uh, we simply don't recognize at times that which is around us. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Harfield and our guest for today, Dr. Wesley Shoup. Let's uh, get back to the phone lines. We've got some limited time left in the show, so see if we can't get a couple of calls on the line. First, let's go to Mobile. Tim is called in today. Good morning, Tim. Go ahead. Good morning. Um, just a couple of quick things. First of all, uh, thank you to Dr. Shoup for being on the show. And I wanted to mention that Mobile here was the, the hometown and pretty much lifelong residence, I think, of one of America's greatest naturalists, E.O. Wilson. And reading about him caused me to be interested in insects somewhat, just like, oh, I've decided I don't need to kill every spider I see or every ant or even every wasp. You know, leave them alone, they'll leave me alone. So that's, the, that's thanks to E.O. Wilson. And the other thing is I have the answer to your question about uh, dog versus cat or uh, how to convince a cat owner that they should also have a dog. All right. Uh, so 3 a.m., 
burglar coming through your window and you have a six-pound cat <laughs> or a 60-pound dog. <laughs> now, granted, the cat could probably do as much damage as the dog because angry cats are like a thing to be feared. But a 60-pound dog has a certain intimidation factor that a cat just won't have. Great point, Tim. I know that uh, when I go on my walks in the evening time, even when the dog is in its yard and is protecting its yard like it does with barking, it does raise the the hackles on the back of my neck there. So a good point that dogs can be a little bit intimidating just by their size alone. So we appreciate uh, you calling in this morning. Let's uh, stay on the phone lines. Off to Abbeville we go next. Andre has called in today. Good morning, Andre. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Yeah, I might have missed it, but I don't think Dr. Shoup has mentioned where his book is available for purchase. Uh, so that's a question. And then I just wanted to make a comment that if people are really interested in inviting our natural wildlife into their yards, is uh, leave a wild space in your yard. I In the spring, I don't mow my grass until all the wildflowers have come up and gone to seed. And I do ask people, I have stop and ask me, is there something wrong with my mower? And I just tell them, no, I'm leaving it there for the bees and the butterflies. And it is quite something to see in the early spring when they all start coming in. And I highly encourage people to do that. It's called No No Mow March is what I think it's called. All right. uh, Thanks for your call. Where can someone get a copy of the book? Uh, You can order it online uh, from University uh, Press of Mississippi. Uh, or you can go down to Lemuria. Um, it's also available at Cotton Row uh, in a bookstore in Cleveland. And most bookstores throughout um, uh, the state uh, will have it. Um, the museum uh, here in um, Jackson will have it in their bookstore as well. Uh, and also, I'd, I'd like to say I agree with that young lady uh, exactly as to what she said uh, about leaving wild spaces. You can also, uh, uh, as you try to look at your lawn, you it can get rid of the invasive species uh, and get in um, plants that are more uh, effective for your local pollinators, uh, such as milkweeds and whatnot. And so you can have a beautiful yard, but a native yard. Uh, and that helps out as well. And it doesn't anger your neighbors as much. All right. uh, Thanks for the call this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Got a couple of minutes left, and the final chapter of your book is fungi lichens, I think. Is that right? Lichens. Lichens, sorry. And slime molds. So tell us a little bit about about that. (laughs) Well, again, uh, I I tried to include uh, all of life uh, that is found in Mississippi in the book. Uh, uh, Fungi are ubiquitous uh, throughout the state. We know them mainly as mushrooms. Uh, but uh, th- probably the one that you see throughout the year are lichens. Uh, those are those uh, um, multicolored um, uh, stains that you see on your tree. Um, and what they are is a combination of both a fungus and an algal cell. Uh, the fungus uh, um, is the substrate, and the algal cell actually 
collects uh, light from the sun, produces sugars, which feeds the fungus. Uh, and so it's really a composite organism that you have on the uh, on all, virtually all of your trees in the state. Um, and it's they're present throughout the year. Slime molds are one of the most interesting organisms on the planet. It's one of the largest cells on the planet. Um, they are, for the most part of the year, they're microscopic. They look like little amoebas, if you could see them going through your, your grass and what have you. But at certain times of the year, thousands of them come together and fuse into this thing we call a slime mold. And it can move. And it can be multiple feet in diameter. And it's a single cell. But it moves somewhat like an amoeba does. Uh, and uh, they then form spores. Uh, and then complete the life cycle. But these two are life forms that we have in the state that people pay very, very little attention to. And I was hoping with my book to draw our attention to it and make us aware of them. Also, just a couple of seconds left. I think it's interesting that you have an index of scientific and common names. So not only can people enjoy the photography and learn more about uh, their surroundings, but also figure out what exactly it is, that what to call them next time they see one, I guess. Exactly. All right, so uh, the book is Mississippi's Natural Heritage, Photographs of Flora and Fauna by our guest, Wesley Shoup. It's available online from University Press of Mississippi or in uh, bookstores across the state. So uh, I would highly recommend it. It's a great book and, again, just wonderful, wonderful photography. And speaking of photography, if you're out and about in the great state of Mississippi and you see something that you can't figure out what it is and want some help identifying it, if you got your smartphone with you, take a picture of it, send it in to us, and we'll see if we can't figure out what it is for you. That's going to wrap us, up, wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by contributions from listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org radio. Our show is produced by Java Chapman. Our call screener today was Abram Nanny. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Harfield, and our guest, Dr. Wesley Shoup, I'm Kevin Farrell. Inviting you to stay tuned because up next, it's autocorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.